Hello, and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implication for clinical practice. I'm your host tonight, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Um, unfortunately, uh, well, for, sorry, fortunately, really, um, Dr. Aaron Parks couldn't make it tonight because he is a new grandfather. So congratulations to Aaron from all of us at Let's Get Psych. We're really happy for you. Um, tonight, I am joined by my co-host, third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Tosh, and congrats to Aaron. And we're also joined by two guests, actually, one guest host who's a return guest host, Dr. Michelle Tom, who is a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at UCR. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Tosha, and congratulations, Erin. Exciting news. Yes, exactly. Um, and then today we will be joined by Dr. Lauren Dundees, who is a professor of sociology at McDaniel College in Westminster, Maryland, where she's been for the past 25 years. She is the editor of the 2019 book, The Psychosocial Implications of Disney Movies. She has published 10 articles about Disney movies in academic journals. So welcome, uh, welcome Lauren, Professor Dundees. Thank you, Tosha. So today, um, I, I just want to introduce um, today's show, which is about Disney. That, that was kind of a giveaway introducing um, Lauren to the show, to the listeners. But yeah, so today we're going to be talking about Disney. And the reason I've been wanting to do this episode for a while, really, ever since I watched Soul. Um, and I just was so upset from the first 10, 15 minutes of watching the movie. So I've been like itching to, to talk about it on this show. Um, and I came upon Lauren's work uh, where she's written so much about Disney and all of its implications and its messaging. So today we're going to talk about Disney's messaging to children, specifically on human psychology, gender, and race. Um, and there are two movies we're really going to focus on, which are Soul and Frozen. Um, I just want to say before we get started that the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California UC Riverside's um, School of Medicine, or I suppose McDaniel College. <laughs> so um, yeah, let's let's uh, get started here. I, I guess I, my first question um, is, you know, I, I is really for everyone here. I want to just ask, you know, Disney. It, Disney has such a big impact on everyone's lives, really. Um, my life included. I am a fan of Disney movies and the theme parks. Um, I wanted to hear from you guys. Do you guys have a favorite Disney movie? I'll let the <laughs> others answer. Okay. My favorite Disney movie is Fantasia. Okay. Ooh. What about you, Michelle? I mean, I think I would need a list in front of me because sometimes I get confused on which are Disney movies and which mm. are That's Pixar. true. We, we are talking about both. We're talking about Frozen, yeah. which is a Disney movie, and Soul, which is Disney Pixar. So either of those. Yeah. I honestly I don't I don't know. Um well, I'm gonna have to pause and take a look at a list of Disney yeah, movies yeah. right now. I'll say that my favorite one growing up was The Little Mermaid. Uh definitely a hardcore Little Mermaid fan when I was a little girl. Um uh, what about you, Lauren? Any um, I couldn't say I, 
I guess um, I will speak for my children who are now age 27 and 31. Um, but my daughter was completely obsessed with Pocahontas, whom she called Ty, and I never knew why. Um, and uh, and my son was obsessed with Beauty and the Beast. But part of it was the age they were when the movies came out. But um, of the, I've written 10 articles, as you mentioned, uh, Tosha, and the first one was about Pocahontas. And the reason that I wrote that was my first article was because my daughter watched it hundreds of times and I knew the dialogue by heart, like, you know, going around the house and it was like the best babysitter ever to have her obsessed with this movie. Um, and so I, that was my very first Disney movie, movie article that I did partly be, it wasn't that I decided uh, that I wanted to be a scholar on Disney. It was yeah. just, that I had spent when I had a, this young child, I had a, you know, a, a, you know, a, two-year-old and a, a six-year-old and there was just a lot of that going on in the background. Uh, that was actually my next question for you, Lauren, was how did you come to start writing critically about Disney and its work? Well, uh, I know we, we were going to be talking about, you know, Soul and Frozen, but the reason that I decided that I had to write about uh, Disney's Pocahontas was that the movie had gotten a lot of acclaim because Pocahontas was very venturous, athletic, and mm -hmm. she was branded this new brand of woman. And she was very impressive in that regard. But then I hated the ending and it was so awful. And I asked my students and they hate the ending too, because, and in real life, she did sail off with John Smith. But for listeners who, who don't know what happens is she says, uh, three words. And when I tell my students this, they snicker. And I, they, and I tell them this was the basis of, of the article and my future career uh, writing about Disney movies was when she's asked, when she's deciding if she's going to stay with her people or go off with John Smith, she says, I'm needed here. And in other words, it's not about what she wants. It's about what other people expect. And as women, um, women know that we're supposed to be altruistic. And if we're not, we're, you know, we're bad people. And so here she is, she's supposed to sacrifice what she wants to make other people happy. And yeah. one of the reviewers said, well, are you the kind of person, you know, you, you'd never be happy. You can't, you can't win. At least she's not getting married at the end, like the typical ending. And I said, well, how about she says I'm needed here and I'm going to be a leader. But just to say I'm needed here, it's unclear. And particularly in that culture, as, as a woman, I, it, it's, I don't think that she was necessarily destined for a lot of political power uh, in the Powhatan tribe. So that's how I got started, because I just thought to myself, why is this the ending where she's expected to sacrifice what she wants? Because she obviously wants to go off with John Smith. And as I said, in real life, historically, not that it's historically accurate. That's what happened. And that really bothered me. And I decided to write about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I totally forgot about that. She said that. Um, I really yeah. just remember Kokuam a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. Of course. Yeah. The uh, number one suitor for Pocahontas. Um, well, you know, uh, I, another question I have for you is, you know, we've established that we're, some of us are fans of Disney, um, but Disney is such a big deal. I mean, their theme parks, their movies, their TV channel and shows, their soundtracks. 
um, and their toys bring joy to millions of people. They're extremely, extremely devoted fans. I mean, I, um, a couple of my closest childhood friends ended up going to UC Irvine for college because it was the closest school to the parks. Um, yeah. So what, what has been your reception? What has been the reception, Lauren, to your criticism of Disney? Well, the word that it's always the same word. It's the word ruin. You've ruined this movie, by the way, I definitely ruined little mermaid. So I don't know if you have time to get into that, but there is this very dramatic, violent impalement of Ursula where she is taken on a male role and she's feminized through this dramatic impalement, uh, very masculine, the deep voice impaled and goes back to being a woman and the power goes back to Triton, the male symbolized by the Triton. Uh, the tri- uh, trident, Triton's Trident. That's a little tongue twister there. Right. So um, the students, um, they're very resistant. Um, some of them are hostile, but by wow. the time I'm finished with them, they see that there's a pattern. And I often yes. get a question that I that I thought it would be nice to address up front. And that yeah. is, by the time I've convinced at least some of the students, either that or they're doing a good job faking it, noting the pattern, they said they always, do you think that Disney intended to um, have these kinds of messages about gender dynamics or race or, or whatever it is? And I say, absolutely not. I think it's, it's unconscious. And mm-hmm. that means that there isn't proof. But the point is, when you see the pattern repeated over and over again, then you know that there's something going on. And, and my students usually by the end, they're like, what? They have noticed the pattern in many other Disney movies, often ones I haven't seen because I haven't seen them all. So that's, I think, important to say. Yeah, go ahead, Michelle. You were going to say something. Oh, no. I think I was going to say I figured out my favorite Disney movie. (laughs) Oh, tell us. I I think it was Moana. I'm going to say Moana. Okay, nice. Well, I was going to say, Lauren, I mean, piggybacking off of what you were saying, that is really like the structural part to every ism, right? Like structural racism, uh, structural misogyny, patriarchy, um, that it's just kind of this underlying context to everything. Even the stories that we um, love, grow up loving as children, Um, So tell us more about the college course, because you do teach about this uh, at McDaniel College. Yeah, so I generally incorporate into my introductory sociology class. uh, Because Disney's so popular, um, a few years ago, I taught uh, a class called Decoding Disney, and it was nothing but Disney movies. And by the end, I was like, no, I can't. (laughs) Um, it, it was a lot of, of, of Disney and, um, you know, there are patterns that recur. So it was a little bit, I don't know, I thought it got a little bit redundant, but it was fine. The students could do presentations and it was a first year seminar and, and so forth. But generally I, I incorporated into the class. Um, what was interesting is, um, and, um, to see what the students' favorite movies are. The, when I taught that course, the resounding favorite, and this was just a couple of years ago, they all loved Lilo and Stitch, and I had never seen it. And, yeah, yes. And, oh, um, wow. and interestingly enough that there is um, one of the authors in the book I edited talked about Lilo and Stitch and talked about as a gay woman how the the character resonated with her yeah. um, because of, you know, the, the portrayal 
um, an outsider. Yes, had exactly. To, and uh, cover up what made him look different from yeah, high exactly high, right. Yeah. And really, in a lot of criticism that Disney's faced recently is about a term that that I haven't used, but I've heard used called queer baiting, which is this idea that there are sort of hints that a character might be LGBT LGBT plus, but that they're not going to be obvious about it. And I think, frankly, it has to do with the um, worried about uh, profit and alienating a certain constituency of this country. So, um, but that has been a criticism. But anyway, in this article in the book, the author takes a very personal view and just kind of as a side note, because usually um, readers of articles don't know the backstory. But in this particular article, one of the reviewers said, criticized the author and it was published and said this you're making this so personal you're talking about how you personally related to this character as someone who was queer and how it was meaningful to you and this is actually to give uh, uh, disney some kudos that this this was helpful to the author of of this article and i thought that um and then the art the um the author was saying, why can't articles mean be more personal? Why do they always have to be in this third person very far removed? And so I was all for it and it was published. So that's kind of a, that's actually something that I think is an opportunity to say something good about Disney, even though it wasn't um, as obvious or patent as it might've been. I think a lot of people, uh, I think oh, the, sorry, go ahead, Alan. I think the queer baiting thing coming back to kind of, what this is all about being money is an astute kind of observation. Um, I think Dick, Disney, like many other brands is in some ways in terms of at least our critique of it, a victim of its own success where Disney's goal is to make money. And it just so happens that in, in the pursuit of money, Disney started telling the narratives of our culture that have become um to use a John Gottman phrase, kind of like maps for how we relate to our world. And when you use Disney movies to relate to how you're going to approach and expectations for love, expectations for the American dream, I think that's where things start to have problems beyond, I mean, uh, of course, revisionist history, right? Like in Pocahontas, but also, you know, a lot of movies have had revisionist history. Um, but Disney has also in some ways gone out of their way maybe not more than any other company, but gone out of their way to, um, I'll just say, tell lies. Uh, So one in particular is um, the idea that certain rodents commit suicide was created by Disney. Um, And uh, so so I think it's lemmings um, that are thought to or were thought to, yeah, it's lemmings, jump off cliffs to sort of control their population numbers. And Disney created a documentary called White Wilderness um, that was kind of like a big, large-scale nature documentary. And they couldn't find lemmings to commit suicide for them because lemmings don't actually do that. So they launched a bunch of them off a conveyor belt, off of a cliff into water. And, you know, not only perpetuated that myth, but just, you know, kind of are showing that, oh, yeah, this is a company whose bottom line is their bottom line. Wait, what? Um, I've never heard of this. Yeah. So you can, and if you want to, if you want to check out some sources for this, the the most official kind of one that I found that explains what happened here is the Alaska Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife, like the, the government page, 
has a has a whole thing called Lemming Suicide Myth, Disney Film Faked Bogus Behavior. <laughs> but there's lots of articles online about how this happened. And they're not sure if Walt Disney was aware of this. Um, I certainly appreciate the work you're doing and calling attention to the imperfections of this, because if you're going to rise to be powerful enough to tell the stories of our culture, someone needs to be pointing out that this is not uh, necessarily a healthy way to be forming. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the common criticism uh, that I faced from, from a young age, because I like to analyze movies in particular, was that why can't you just enjoy the movie and just it's entertainment? That's all it is. But of course, as, as uh, the previous conversation, we had Tosha talking about it has a monopoly and it's so powerful. And um, it's it is amazing to see the influence in terms of the watching the movie and merchandise and so forth. And so I think that although it does have entertainment value, I think that there's no reason to ignore some of the messages that are kind of below the surface and certainly to say that Disney should be able to do better. It's a multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, talking about soul, because we haven't talked about race as much. I, I do focus on race and gender as someone who's a professor of sociology. But in the case of soul, I, I just don't understand how Disney could be so blind as to repeat the mistake of Princess and the Frog, where the first black princess, Tiana, was a frog most of the movie, uh, which, which a lot of black people and white people as well found offensive, particularly black people found it offensive that here finally they have an opportunity to be portrayed in a royal situation. So they turn around in Seoul and have the, a black man, Joe Gardner, who's not particularly relatable to children. I mean, he's he's a failure to launch. His mother's, you know, kind of taking care of him and, and talking about, you know, doing his, uh, she says, uh, we didn't struggle giving you an education so you could be a middle-aged man washing your underwear in my shop. And like most kids aren't gonna be like, oh, he sounds cool. So I think you know, the, the fact is you have this movie Soul, which that has this protagonist, black character, Joe Gardner, and he's not relatable. Uh, some of my students said they found him to be selfish. And clearly, if you look at the merchandise, the 22 character, um, Tina Fey, it's a, uh, a white woman, and it's discussed in the movie, she's a white woman, her voice, um, is uh, really kind of the star. And they're going to be doing, for Soul, it looks like they're going to be doing a prequel. And it's not going to be about Joe. It's going to be about 22, who is the one who's popular. Oh, they're um, doing a prequel? I didn't know that. A short, a little short prequel, and it'll okay. star Tina Fey. I don't know if Jamie Foxx will even be in it. I, I just, you know, sometimes they have plans and plans change. But I wouldn't be surprised because here you have this the black man who who really isn't isn't on screen as a black man because he's either you know in the body of a cat or he's a blue blob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. If you're just joining us, this is Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about Disney's messages to children with Professor Lauren Dundies. So let's move on. Um, you know, another thing that really bothered me about the messaging that Disney had in the movie Soul is its messages about um, personalities and how they are formed in this very rigid way uh, where personality traits are literally assigned at birth. I remember one character is determined to be a megalomaniac, um, opportunistic megalomaniac, I think is how they describe this one soul. And, you know, obviously... 
the problem with that is that for all those kids out there who have been called the problem child and now think of themselves as like, there's something inherently wrong with them. That is just not true. (laughs) That is a big problem. That is a big problem for children to hear. It's a big problem for people who work with children or who live with children or who care for children to hear. And, you know, I've said in the past on this show that trauma is in everything. Well, neither is genetics, neither is personality. Um, there are both things that can both, all of these things contribute. So many things contribute to someone's personality, their mental health. Um, you can't just say it's one thing. Um, so, you know, here I, I really want to push back on that, but For me, I mean, the reason I got so upset was because I felt that Disney had purposefully um, marketed this movie as being a black movie. You know, the trailer was like, was completely images from like the first five minutes of the movie. It was um, Joe Gardner in the body of a black man walking around the streets of New York in a black community. And it seemed like they were saying, this is going to be a movie in a black community about a black man and about jazz. But then when you watch the movie, it really doesn't feel very black at all. It seems like a very surface level understanding of what it is to be a part of the black community. And um, I, I guess what would have been more satisfying is if, you know, Tina Fey, I think this could have been really different if, if 22 were voiced by, um, a, a, either a, a black boy or girl's voice or something, you know, Absolutely. It, it, it would have been it, so easy, so easy. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It would have been so different. Tosha, Go ahead, is this a good time to, could we ask you to just explain what you learned about the fixer person that's occasionally hired okay. that seems to really yeah. relate so, to the point so get this i mean when you do some digging on the creation of soul so this took four plus years to make and um uh in towards the end or when when they kind of got stuck in this spot where they were like okay let's make this about a black jazz musician um and living in new york then they decided for let's hire this man, Kent Powers, um, who wrote um, One Night in Miami. He wrote One Night in Miami. He is a black man. He is, loves jazz. And I believe he's from New York. So, you know, he, he has some authenticity there for sure. Um, but they hire one black man for two weeks. He eventually does stay on for the rest of the movie, which is two years. So he stays on for less than half of the actual time to make this movie. And in watching, again, I am a fan, so I have Disney Plus. I watch a lot of the special features stuff. In the special features, they really play up the fact that he added maybe his biggest, like the the crowning achievement that he added was the barbershop scene, which again is like, kind of a sprinkling of like, look, see, this is like the black community. But it, again, it didn't really feel um, black and mainly because, you know, Tina Fey is doing all the talking, right? Right. <laughs> she, all, all of these, all of the messages, all of the like lessons that Joe Gardner learns is mediated by this white woman. Um, all right. of the, all of the conversations, the deep conversations he has with people in, the community, his friends, um, his mom, 
they're mediated by Tina Fey. And Tina Fey learns nothing about the Black community. Okay, anyway, sorry, I'm getting off track. The, no, no, the, thing I was saying, the thing I was saying was that that is the thing that he added. So he adds this piece to it. And it just feels like they they already had the idea for the movie. They wanted it to be something yes. about like what happens when the person who doesn't want to die meets someone who doesn't want to live, right? That was the whole thing in the movie. Um, and they decided, let's make it, put it in this black, um, like, look. Um, and let's hire one person from that community to make it authentic. And this, the thing is, this has been done before. So on this article in Vanity Fair, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but this article in Vanity Fair, um, let me see if I can find it here. We'll put um, it in the show notes. Yeah, so, so it, oh, an article in 2017. So it says, Pixar has released 19 films since 1995, and just three of them, Brave, Inside Out, and Finding Dory, have been centered on a female protagonist. Um, as New Statesman points out, there are 109 major writing credits across Pixar's film. Just 11 have gone to women or people of color. And it also talks about how um, Chapman was hired to, as she says in the article, she says, quote, fix. She was hired to fix the one-dimensional female characters in Cars. So they hire one woman. There's, she was like the one woman in the story department. They hire her to fix the one-dimensional character in cars. Um, so it, it's it that was disturbing to me. Um, and it really and made me feel like instead of you know really making this true to their culture at the company of uh, of caring about you know authenticity, representation, inclusion, diversity, they just want to pick, they want to handpick. The person that they approve of in the community to represent the whole community and fix their movie. And, and it reminds you of what they are, which is they're a, a corporation, right? It's like, let's build this product. And this month, the cool thing to do is blueberry iced tea. So let's hire right, our right. cool flavor consultant the flavor of and the put month, on yeah. blueberry iced tea. And and the fact that it's, I mean, this I'm getting a second hand from the post in my conversation about this kind of thing, but it sounded like, correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounded like they were kind of openly, maybe not not like openly potentially proud that like, oh yeah, look, we have a diversity consultant and we bring them on several times uh, or, or not several times in several different movies. It's like, oh yeah, we have this culture. We're not really trying to change it. We're not introspective about it, but we do kind of shave things a little bit at the end. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, so, so those are some of the problems with the with the idea behind Soul that that really irked me. But what about Frozen? I know we only have a few minutes left here. We've got like four minutes left. But let's let's talk about what what's some of the messaging that we're seeing in Frozen. Well, I think that Disney is still trying to figure out what to do with powerful women. And in a nutshell, the uh, the article an article I have called Frozen in Time. Um, which is actually not not in the the book, um, but it uh, one of the main points of the article is that the message could be seen as from one perspective that women can either have love or power, but not both. And the fact that Elsa was so powerful meant that somehow she wasn't she didn't love anybody, male or female. 
Um, and she was not lovable either. So this idea that powerful women are just not uh, destined to have uh, relationships. And in fact, it is true that very powerful women often do struggle with this because the idea is if they're more powerful than the man, it's like, we well, don't respect the man because he's you know got this woman running the show. And if, it, if they're equal, then it's like, well, it detracts from her. She's powerful. And obviously, you know, you wouldn't want to have a man who's more powerful because then that kind of defeats the purpose. So they really don't know what to do with a powerful woman. And that's why, you know, when all the speculation occurred about Elsa is Elsa gay, I didn't see any evidence that she was right. gay. But yeah. She doesn't have a partner and she's sort of attractive. I know she's a cartoon. Um, but so I think that that's really an issue. And I'll just say I know we're close on time. But one other kind of thing is that if we look at Frozen 2, which actually made more money than the first one, um, the first Frozen is that at the end, um, Elsa, she finally learns how to control her power that was triggered by emotion. What do you think about that? Um, the gender stereotypes. Right. And at the end, she decides she's going to share her power with her sister. Why do women have to share power? Right, right. And, and the, the whole struggle or the hero's challenge here for Elsa was learning to control and reign in her power in a way that's acceptable for her to fit into society and for society not to be afraid of her. Right. Because she lost control when her emotions were out of control, you know, for years, women, because they have a, a menstrual cycle, they, they shouldn't be in power because what if it's that time of the month and they, you know, ruin society because of these raging emotions. And mm -hmm. uh, we still haven't had a woman president, uh, which I'm sure everybody knows. So I think that this is you know, a real concern um, that Disney hasn't figured it out yet. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and Lauren, did you have anything that you wanted to say about soul also? Uh, I think we mostly talked about like some structural problems with soul, but anything about the messaging in particular? Yeah, I mean, I just, as I said, I think that it's, it's a great concern and it, many critics, especially black critics have brought up the issues of erasure. Um, they're like the black identities erased and as well as dehumanization with black man in the body of a cat, which is really incredible, <laughs> incredible and misstep. The uh, white woman nicely. taking his body. Yeah. Right. And just, you know, it's a little bit like the, the classic movie get out, which has also mm -hmm. been, been brought up, but also one more thing that I think that is um, aside from the fact that he's like failure to launch and not relatable. Um, but also at one point, um, early on when he he wants to uh, pursue this career in jazz, but he has this offer to at the, at the middle school to be the music teacher. And the principal says, you're now our full time band teacher, job security, medical insurance, pension. And it's like, why does the black character have to wor worry about these mundane things? And some people may say there's a reality with socioeconomic differences, but Disney movies are supposed to be fantasy. And, you know, just like you had Princess Tiana, who opens up a restaurant, and she's still working at the end. You also have this character, Joe, who's concerned about the world of labor and work, uh, which is a stereotype. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. So that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Um, today, we discussed uh, some issues with Disney as a company and some of the messaging um, in their movies, latent for children. Thank you to co-host Dr. Alan Atkins, guest host Dr. Michelle Tom. Uh, we also want to thank uh, you, Dr. Dundies, for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. 
If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us on getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of our show on your favorite streaming platform. And if you like our show, we'd really appreciate a follow, rating, and or comment, but really any feedback would be very welcome. Our producer is Elliot Fong, and I've been your host, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.